Well, good morning. Happy Easter. Jesus is risen. It's good to see your faces, your smiles. It's good to see your pastels. It's really good to see the sunshine, uh, I might add. Uh, my name is Marshall. I'm the senior pastor here. I'll be teaching here in just, uh, just a moment. I do hope if I have not met you, I get a chance to meet you. I realize that is the uh, likelihood of meeting everybody that's uh, here this morning is unlikely, but I would love to meet you. Uh, if there's anything that you have questions about our church, um, about anything really, anything I say today or anything that happens, we, I would love to hear from you. Nick would love to hear from you. You can find our email and email us. And those opportunities on April 22nd are great opportunities. To, I'd love for you to come to our house. It's a fun party on April 22nd uh, or even to the membership seminar that morning. So uh, to learn more about our church, to learn more about what we believe and ask uh, all of your questions. But let me uh, pray before we look at uh, the verses that Joe has read for us. God, it's Easter, and so that means we sing songs like, Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. But as those words pass our lips, or at least we see them and hear them, if we're honest, many of us aren't feeling that. We come into this room singing, Christ the Lord is risen today, but bearing in our heart fear and anxiety and anger and, yes, many doubts. So, Lord, I pray that by the preaching of your word, the reading, the praying, the singing of your word, you would revive our hearts again. You would renew our hearts that we might with whole and full hearts sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. For it is in his name and your son's sake, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Well, we have been in a series on the Ten Commandments, if you've been with us this winter, spring. And I chose to do this series because in the fall... We did a series that we called Amazing Grace, and it was kind of a theological service uh, sermon series about uh, what grace is like. And coming out of that series, uh, I wanted to do something that was more practical, where the rubber meets the road, uh, put flesh on the bone, as it were. Uh, I wanted to consider what does it look like for grace when it comes to our work life and how we rest uh, what it looks like, how we think about our money and our financial life and how we think about sex and our sex life. And there's no better place in the scriptures to address work and rest, sex and money than the Ten Commandments. So that is what we have done. And today we complete the series, the Tenth Commandment, You Shall Not Covet. And at some level, this commandment, you shall not covet, is the most piercing of all of the Ten Commandments. It's piercing in several ways. First, the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, is piercing because it demolishes a superficial understanding of the Christian life. You've heard of this, even if you're not familiar with the church, you kind of have this idea in your mind, you've seen this, a superficial version of Christianity, that Christianity is for people who are good who do the right things, right? They're the ones who follow and keep the Ten Commandments all the time. They don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with the people who do. Um, and you, you know, you honestly, in external reading, you can make it through most of the Ten Commandments and think, you know, I got, I, I got this, I got this, you know? Do not murder, got it, right? No adultery, well, not technically. Uh, no stealing, I mean, my tax return's mostly right. But no coveting? No coveting? Really? Can't slip that knot. Uh, because it's here in the Ten Commandments that something that looks external, and they're all actually internal as well, but this one dis decidedly turns to our internal motivations, to our hearts. And in so doing, the Tenth Commandment obliterates 
a superficial understanding of the Christian life. But it's also piercing this commandment because, as my wife pointed out to me and said to me, uh, American life, American capitalist life, it's kind of built on coveting. <laughs> I mean, what would we do without coveting? <laughs> uh, you got to have those shoes. Dying to play that golf course. I really hope that I or my child gets into that school. Man, I really hope my house can look like her house. I mean, social media appears to be one large bazaar of coveting. I mean, we have social media influencers and celebrity endorsers. Let's be clear. What is being endorsed and influenced is for you to covet, for you to desire a certain product or a certain lifestyle. But ultimately, this commandment, you shall not covet, it pierces us because it speaks of desire. Desire. What do you want? What do you want and how badly do you want it? You see, friends, desiring is fundamental to being human. It is a basic, perhaps the basic human instinct to desire is human. Now, with all the Ten Commandments, we have seen that there is a flip side. There is what is prohibited, uh, but also what is required. And so this one says, you shall not covet, but there's something required. I mean, think about murder. Do not murder, we said, also requires that you love one another. Do not steal requires that you be generous. And the command not to covet requires that we learn contentment. And doesn't that sound nice? Don't you wish that you were content with your life, with your spouse, with your marriage, with your children? Don't you wish you were content? Which is another way of asking, don't you wish you were happy? So this morning, I want to look at the goodness of desire, the soul-sucking devastation of coveting, and then finally the path to contentment. But first, the goodness of desire. This is brief but important because I think we think of ourselves. I know that in my weak moments, I think of myself as a thinker. I think that I am rational. But at our core, we are primarily desiring animals, desiring beings. I mean, there's a line of teaching and thinking that if you can just think the right thoughts, if you can just have the right thoughts and think them, have the right worldview, then you will make good decisions and your life will go well. Just think right. It's just not true because at our core, we are far more than rational beings. We are much more driven by our gut. We are lovers. We are desirers. We are desirers. If you need proof of this, there's a golf tournament on TV this afternoon. Turn it on and watch the advertisements and look at the logos on the players' sleeves. They will not be bullet point instructions or slideshows on how the product is great. They will be images desired to make you feel something. Wear this watch and you can be a champion. Drive this car and you can have that lifestyle. And if you're important enough and make enough money, you can have a private jet lifestyle. What are advertisements? They are an appeal to our desires because it's our desires that propel us through life. Our desires propel us. They're fundamental to who we are. I mean, a desire is what propelled Alex into that yoga studio, right? You see, a major concern of human beings is what do we do with our desire? 
You see, every culture and religion has tried to figure this out. How do we handle our desires? So let me real briefly skim the answers. And this is acknowledgedly a skim of the answers. But I want to give several options for how people handle desire. The first, the modern secular American. The solution to your desires is simply indulge them. (laughs) Just indulge them. We are the land of the free, which means you can do what you want. Just buy it. Just get it. In the words of a secular American prophet, Woody Allen, the heart wants what it wants. Now, the problem with that is if you've tried it, and most of us have, it really does not satisfy, right? That shiny thing fades. We need a new one, a bigger one, a better one. And if we're honest, the more we get, we feel increasingly empty by simply indulging our wants. So that's one end of the spectrum, just indulge. The other end of the spectrum is Buddhism or Stoicism philosophically, just kill desire, the death of desire. And people have said they've done this, that, but they can leave their appetites and their desires behind. They can just be totally without desire. Now, the problem, even if it is true, I'm not sure it is, but the problem is if you follow that through and you truly want nothing, you've killed your desire, what have you become? You've become self-sufficient. You're incapable of needing another person. You're incapable of serving another person, which is to say you're incapable of love, which is why... Siddhartha, the original Buddha, when he came to enlightenment, what did he do? He left his family. Now, a slightly more nuanced version of this is, you see this in traditional cultures and many religious cultures, including Christian cultures, is that we're just supposed to suppress our desires, you know, kind of tamp them down, just like keep them under control, you know, put them under like a little cap or something. But the problem with that is, It just doesn't work, right? Those desires, because who we are is to desire, they bubble over. You put a cap on the desires and they come out sideways. I mean, that's why it's almost a cliche that the fundamentalist preacher who rails against sex and immorality is doing what? Living a secret life of immorality. But friends, that is not the Bible's view of desire. (laughs) That is not the Bible's view of desire. According to God in the Bible... God is the giver of desires, and he calls our desires when honoring to him good. You know that desire that all of you have to do something, to make an impact? It's the reason that many of you are chomping at the bit to get back to work this afternoon or tomorrow. You want to do something. There's this in you. I want to do something. I want to get an impact. That instinct comes from a God who made us in his image. He is the God who creates. He's the God who does stuff, and he's put that in your heart. You know that desire you have within you to connect with another person? That's because God has made us for relationship and in relationship. And we have a longing within us for intimate relationship. And then there's that longing that comes upon all of us at certain moments. And it's just the longing for, for more. <laughs> you, know, you know it, right? You, just, you can't even name it, but you just know you want more. That, too, is from God. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, God has put eternity into our hearts. He has put eternity into our hearts. You see, friends, God has given us desires. He's created with desires, infinite longings, eternal longings, longings for ecstasy. And the ultimate object of our desire, the only object that can meet that desire, that can exceed our desires, is God himself. Psalm 42, 1. As the deer pants for living water, so my soul pants, so my soul longs for God. You see, according to the Bible, 
and the scriptures and what God says. Our problem is not that our desires are too strong and must be suppressed and tamped down. According to the Bible, our problem is our desires are misplaced and our desires are too weak. They are too weak. 1,500 years ago, uh, one of my heroes, a man named Augustine in North Africa, he had spent the first 30 years of his life chasing honor and sensuality, learning and pleasure, adulation and achievement. At the age of 30, he submitted to Christ. He became a Christian. And this is one of the first things he wrote about that. He said, you have made us for yourself, God. In our hearts, our desires are restless until they find their rest in you, their contentment in you. You see, friends, there is a God-shaped hole of desire in you, and it can only be filled with God himself. That's why one, another author said that every person who has knocked on the door of a brothel was looking for God. Or maybe even more evocatively, C.S. Lewis, a famous uh, Irish guy living in, in Britain years, uh, 60 years ago, uh, wrote this, C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End quote. See, friends, you were made for something greater, something infinite. You were made for ecstasy. And it cannot and will not be satisfied by riches, honor, achievement, or a nicer house. It will not. You see, friends, the problem is not our desires. Our desires are actually too weak. The problem is our desires become misdirected, misplaced, misguided. Which brings us to the second point, the soul-sucking devastation of covetousness. The, soul, the devastation of coveting. The best definition of coveting that I came across was, that's brief, a discontented desire for that which cannot rightly be had. Basically, you know what it means. It's not being satisfied with what you have and wanting what someone else has. I and mean, that's what coveting is, right? I mean, if you were to look, look with me, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. The categories for coveting are someone else's home, someone else's spouse, and someone else's business opportunities, their servants, and their pack animals. But the last line of, Psalm, of Exodus 20, verse 17, the last line of the Ten Commandments is devastating. Do not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Now, coveting uh, desirous has many forms. Coveting can look like wanting a good thing but wanting it too much. I mean, wine, uh, bread, even exercise, those are good things, but you can want them too much, right? Coveting can look like wanting the right things in the wrong order. Wanting to be a good tennis player, that's a good thing, but it's not as important as wanting to be a good parent. Coveting is also not just that, but it's also not just wanting what others have, but it's also grieving or begrudging when someone else becomes successful. Have you ever had the experience of someone else that you're connected to in some way they fail and it feels good, right? You know this taste, right? You know this feeling, the secret satisfaction when someone else fails. 
I mean, a silly test for our covetous hearts is how do you feel when you scroll through your social media feed? How do you feel when you look at these things? Instagram, Facebook. I mean, our responses are more often one of two ways. We either lust for the lifestyle or the experience of others. We're either like, I want that. Why can't that be me? Or we despise them. How could they? Both are forms of coveting. Coveting can be downright nasty. I don't know if you identify with this. I sadly do. Aesop's fable 2,500 years ago tells the story of an envious and covetous man to whom Zeus granted any wish, any wish, on the condition that his neighbor would get twice as much of it as he. Unable to bear the thought of another's luck, he wished to lose one eye. Coveting. It is destructive. Among the many problems of coveting, it's like getting on an escalator and going the direction you don't want to go, and it's just hard to stop the process. The process of coveting, you know this. Now, let me just name it, though. It's helpful to name it as a five-step process. You look, and something, you see something, or you feel something, and it sparks a desire. And then instead of letting it go, you nurse that desire. You kind of, you, you kind of, what would that feel like? You nurse the desire. Then you make a plan. Then you take the object, whatever it is, and then finally you hide the deed. This is why every breach of the Ten Commandments, every breach starts with envy. No one ever committed adultery or stole something without first coveting. Coveting is devastating to our souls. It eats our emotional, spiritual, even our physical health. Some of the verses that Joe read for Psalm 73 is the uh, Jewish scripture, the Old Testament. It's an evocation of envy or coveting. Let me just read James 4, which is a terrible evocation of it in the New Testament. James chapter 4. Look with me. It's in your bulletin. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. So you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. James 4. It's like an episode of succession, right? Or the sideline of a youth travel sports team. Or it's like the local school lunchroom. It's like siblings squabbling over an inheritance. Or the office water cooler during bonus season. James 4 is like your heart when you look at someone else. Maybe it's their social media feed. Maybe it's their Christmas card. And what does your heart feel but envy? covetousness. It robs you of happiness. It antagonizes our relationships. It puts you on edge. It makes you insecure. Coveting can destroy your life. And it's probably destroyed corners of your life, hasn't it? Think of the relationships. Think of the hurt. Because you wanted something. You took something. So how do we cut the cancer of coveting out without killing the desire that God gave that's beneath it? Which is another way of asking that, how do you transform your desires? How do you inflame your desires for the greater good for God? I mean, one of the most difficult questions that you can ask, how do I change what I want? (laughs) Think about that. How do I change what I want to something that won't kill me, that won't destroy my life? Which is another way of asking, how can I be happy? And this brings us finally to the path to contentment. I have a 
I have a crush on the Apostle Paul. He just is, he writes sentences like what I'm about to read to you. Look with me in the bulletin, verses 4, uh, Philippians 4, verse 11 and 12. I'd like to talk to this person. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Let me stop right there. He's in prison when he's writing this. I've learned in whatever situation, learned to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I love this line, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I, what is he saying? I have learned the secret of contentment. Please teach me. I have learned the secret of contentment. I mean, we spend tens of thousands of dollars trying to find what Paul says he has found. Contentment that is not dependent on your circumstances. Anybody want this? Yes, you do. Contentment, happiness, not based on your circumstances. I mean, we go to see therapists. We try to pick the right vacation. I'll just feel rested and you know, invigorated. We try to get the right job, the right university where we can be fulfilled. We try to get our kids in the right school, buy self-help books, go to conferences. To find what Paul says he has found, I have learned to be content. Writing from prison. <laughs> Writing from prison. How did he learn contentment? Now, I'm sure there's several pieces to this puzzle. I'm sure that he learned to trust God who's the provider, the good provider. I'm sure he learned to distrust his ephemeral desires, his disordered loves. I am certain that the Apostle Paul, because he tells us other places, that he learned to give thanks if you want to do something to put covetousness to death in your heart today, practice giving thanks. It is an antidote to coveting what you don't have. But above all else, though he surely struggled with coveting till the end of his days and desire, above all else, what happened to the Apostle Paul? His wanter was being healed. His desirer was being healed. His heart wanted something new and different and better. And he tells us what that was a few verses before in some of my favorite verses in all of literature and certainly in the scripture. Philippians chapter 3. He lists at the beginning of Philippians 3, he lists all of the things he's accomplished. He lists all of his achievements, all the things that he had wanted. But he says that he considers all the things that he had wanted and had achieved, he considers them rubbish, trash, and then he writes maybe my favorite line in all the scripture, Philippians 3, 2. He says, but after all that, I lay all those things behind, count them trash. I want to know Christ, he says. I want to know Christ. It was his longing, his desire for Christ that at some level conquered his coveting, not completely, but at some level. His desire for Christ brought him contentment and joy and hope and all circumstances, it is the secret of contentment, wanting Christ. But that still leaves a question, doesn't it? How do I change what I want? I don't want Christ. Let's be, be honest with yourself. You don't want Christ right now. How, do I want, how did he come to want Christ above all things? How did, he, how did he get to this place? He was overcome by the realities of what we call Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. He was overcome by the realities of crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, listen to the rest of Philippians 3.10. I didn't print it for you, so you got to listen. Listen. I want to know Christ, he says, and the power of his resurrection. 
and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And I love this, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul has become convinced deep in his soul of these twin realities. First, that on the cross when Jesus died and Jesus said, it is finished. That that application was not just to Jesus' life, but it was to Paul's too because Jesus died. Paul's guilt was taken away. His shame was covered. And he no longer had to strive to prove himself. It is finished is what the cross said. But the other reality is this. He had become convinced of the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is risen from the dead. And believing that Jesus is risen from the dead, that means that one day we too will be raised from the dead and all will be made well. The resurrection has transformed him. He knows the end of the story, that resurrection is coming, that all our tears will be wiped away. Sadness and sickness will be no more. Everything sad will become untrue. Every broken relationship in the new heavens and the new earth will be restored. There'll be no more death. As one preacher I like to listen to said it this way, because of the resurrection, too good to be true is a lie. Too good to be true is a lie, for there is no goodness that will not soon be true in the resurrection. Friends, that is resurrection hope. That is resurrection joy. And it is the path to contentment. Just a few months ago, I told a story that I'm going to retell. At Christmas time, I told this story. And it's the story of our closing hymn today. Oh, love that will not let me go. Oh, I love that hymn. Oh, love that will not let me go. And the story behind it is the writer of the hymn was a man named George Matheson who in the 1880s started to go blind. He started to lose his sight, and there was no cure, there was no healing. He was going to become blind. And so he went to his fiancée, the woman to whom he was engaged, and he said, sweetheart, I am going blind. You will be married to a blind man. And she said, I just can't handle that weight, that responsibility, and she broke the engagement. 20 years later, 20 years later, George Matheson uh, he, was at, he was on the eve of his sister's wedding. His sister had been his companion. His sister had been his caregiver. His sister had been his life. And she was getting married and moving out the next day. And on the eve of his sister's wedding, he was riddled with fear. But he was buoyed by the hope of Jesus' resurrection of God's love. And so on that night, he wrote these words, O oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in you. I give you back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. I sang that song eight days ago. I told you if you were here Friday night that a friend of mine's nine-year-old daughter was among those murdered in Nashville at the Covenant School on March 27th. I went to Nashville for the funeral of my friend's daughter. She loved this song. And so at her funeral, we sang it. (laughs) Oh, love that will not let me go. And I must tell you that there were many tears that day in that sanctuary, but they were tears not just of sorrow. The tears of sorrow were real and they were loud. 
but there were also tears of joy because I had never in my life have experienced what I experienced that day. Such a power. I went there sad and was lifted by this family. This powerful display of resurrection hope, resurrection joy. You see, this family, the pastor, the, the father is the senior pastor of the church, and he chose to go back to the scene of the crime. He insisted on it being in the building. There were holes in the sta- bullet holes in the stained glass where we worshiped. And at the beginning of the service, they addressed us, and they addressed the question that all of us is the friends and family of this couple, and of these, they have three boys as well. It's the question all of us had, how can we help? And they had an answer for us. Give your voice and sing loudly, O love that will not let me go. Because these are songs of protest. Songs of, that's where my heart resonates, songs of evil cannot win. We're coming back to this place. We're reclaiming this place. Oh, love that will not love me. They're songs of protest, but they are also songs of hope and of joy. Hallie Scruggs, nine years old, is at home with her Lord. Her suffering is over. The resurrection is real. There is a love that would not and will not let her go. (laughs) My friend, her father, eulogized his nine-year-old daughter that day. I cannot imagine six days after his daughter's murder, standing in front of a congregation and eulogizing her. And he talked about that experience. He said, I will never get to walk my daughter down this aisle and give her away in marriage. He said, but because of the resurrection of, his Jesus, of Jesus and his love that will not let her go, she is home. And she is wrapped in the arms of her beloved friends. Let me tell you that at, at, as, but not until you believe that, the resurrection, not until you believe that and as you believe that, will you be able to find contentment. He is the desire of the nations. He is the lover of your soul. He is the one who will not let you go. And he is raised from the dead. Happy Easter. Jesus is risen. And believing that, friends, is the path. It is the path to a contented, happy life, no matter what your circumstances are. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you've given us desires. You've given us wants. And we thank you that you have taught us that the only way to satisfy our desire is by looking to you and to your son, the one who was crucified, the one who is raised, the one who will come again to make all things new. It's his name we celebrate, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.